Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. And it's an honor to be able to uh, share from the Word of God with you this morning. In every fiber of my being, I understand that those who teach will suffer the stricter judgment. And so I come this morning with a bit of trepidation, but I also come with conviction and certainty in my faith in God and the authority and truthfulness of his word. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and take a look at your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you might touch our hearts and touch our minds, that you might speak to us through your spirit. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I know, I know the notes say verse 16 and 17, which is what we're going to be focusing on, but I'm going to start reading in verse 15. Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through to 17. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want us to take a closer look at the first part of verse 16 there. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, we all know what ashamed means. Now, according to the dictionary, it means, quote, embarrassed or guilty of because of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. Embarrassed or guilty because of one's actions, characteristics, or associations. Paul says he is not embarrassed of the gospel. Now, most of us know what the gospel is. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, of course, is the good news. And the good news is that Jesus died on the cross in our place. He was a substitute for us, a propitiation. And Jesus died on the cross and he suffered death because the consequences of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. That all who place their faith in Jesus and the finished work that he accomplished on the cross will one day get to spend eternity where there's no more death, disease, or disaster. In other words, we can't be with God until our sin is dealt with because sin separates us from God. Do I need to move this one direction or another? Let's do it down here. Now, the reality is we can't have peace in our relationship with God until sin is dealt with. And so Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross that if we place our faith in Christ and the finished work one day, we'll spend eternity in a perfect, perfect place. No more death, no more disease, no more disaster. And now we can have peace with God in our relationship with Him. Now, this word, gospel, is the Greek word euangelion, euangelion. Now, Thayer's Greek lexicon says that it comprises the preaching concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross to procure eternal salvation for men in the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. The gospel comprises the preaching concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross to procure eternal salvation for men in the kingdom of God. Now they continue on here. 
but as restored to life, talking about Christ and us in Christ, and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, talking about Christ, thence to return in majesty to consummate the kingdom of God so that it may be more briefly defined as the glad tidings of salvation through Christ or the proclamation of the grace of God manifested and pledged in Christ, end quote. The gospel, therefore, in the context of Romans chapter 1 is the gospel of Christ. And some translations just put Christ in there because that's what it's talking about, the gospel of Christ. Now, the text says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is a description of Paul's attitude towards the ministry that God called him to proclaim to a lost and harsh world. The cross in those days was not just a piece of jewelry to hang around your neck. The cross was a mark of shame, of criminality. To most men of that time and most people today, Jesus was a madman at best, a malefactor at worst. He was a crazy guy. He just broke off Judaism, started his own group. To the people of Paul's day, his message was but a mockery, a mediocre statement of ethics that can in no way compare with the philosophy of Aristotle or Socrates. The whole world, it seemed, was against him, against Paul. But Paul could stand facing this world and cry with passion, with conviction, with steadfastness, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In the midst of everything that Paul suffered, he remained unashamed of the message of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at the life of Paul, Paul faced great persecution and hardships and desperate circumstances. Many people hated him because of the message he preached, because of the God he followed, because of the faith he had in the Almighty, because of the people, the hope he embraced, because of his unrelenting spirit to tell the world about Jesus. Let's take a little bit of a glimpse into the life of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says this, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Now, why 40 lashes minus one? Why not 40? Because the Jews were worried, what if we miss count? <laughs> and we overdo it. So let's do 40 minus one. That was the grace, okay? So if we miss count, we actually add one, we're still at 40. <laughs> Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Man, we thought we had a bad week. He continues on. He's not done yet. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there was a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Hmm. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, 
I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This past summer, I started to realize what Paul was actually saying because from January all the way through to uh, about a month ago, we've been on the road and I've been speaking on Genesis 1 to 11. And some days I don't feel that great. And it's not just regular stuff, and I'm not going to get into that. But when I don't feel great and I don't have the energy and I don't know if I can do it, that's when you have to rely on God. And you got to pray to God and ask Him for His strength. You see, that's what I believe Paul was getting at. Paul never backed away from his steadfastness in serving God by proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Regardless of his situation, regardless of his circumstances, Paul could say unreservedly, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, in my own life, when I first became a believer, isn't it interesting when people first get saved, there's this fire in them. A lot of people who just get saved, there's a fire in them, there's a zeal, there's a passion, and there's an unashamed excitement about the gospel, and it seems as we move along in our Christian life that that starts to dwindle, starts to fade. I had a zeal, a passion, an unashamed excitement for the gospel of Christ, and I wasn't afraid to share it with just about anyone. But my mentor back in the day was my pastor, and he said, you know, when I went to Bible college, because I was talking about going to Bible college, he said, when I went to Bible college, I came back and I had lost my passion, I had lost my zeal. And so he said, you better make sure that that's where God wants you. I went, I came back. And as the years rolled by, after having gone through Bible college, I mean, that's about the Bible, right? That's about God's Word. But my passion, my zeal, my excitement seemed to decline, to fade, to dwindle, to wither. How about you folks this morning? How about us here at Redemption Red Deer? Can we really say this morning, I am not ashamed of the gospel without any reservation? Now, I think it's quite an easy thing to say, but quite another to demonstrate in our own lives. Let me give you an example from my own life. This was a while ago, several decades ago. I had basically gone through Bible college, and I went back to Manitoba to visit my mom and dad. And uh, in the house, talking with my mom, and she said, you know, this uh, young man, 23 years old, Evan, he just, he was diagnosed with cancer. I didn't really know Evan. My dad knew him best. My mom knew him a little bit, but I didn't really know him at all. And uh, my mom looks at me and she says, you should go talk to him. And I remember, uh, I'm just going to be totally forthright and honest with you this morning. I remember thinking to myself, why are you putting this on me? Why don't you go and talk to him? Now, of course, this was my mother, and so uh, I didn't actually say that, but that was going through my head. And so I, I thought about what would that be like if I go and knock on their door and say, hi, I'm here to talk to Evan, and you are who? Oh, well, I'm, I'm Les Nelson's son. Oh, well, what do you want to talk to Evan about? Well, I want to share with him about God's Word. And I imagine that being awkward 
And imagine there being a little bit of, you know, shame almost in that, and I was fearful, so I never went. Like a coward, I never went and talked to Evan. I went back home, and then a few months later, went back to visit my mom and dad, and they told me things had declined with Evan. He was now in the hospital. He was going downhill. Now, I was with my dad one day, and we were driving. He said, hey, stop by the hospital. I want to go see Evan. And so we stopped at the hospital. I stayed in the truck. He went up and saw Evan, and apparently almost Evan's entire family was there. That tells you something. The doctors gave Evan one or two days to live. Now, I found that out when my dad came back to the truck. He came back to the truck, and he said, the doctors have given Evan one or two days to live. And my dad at that time wasn't a Christian. He became a born-again Christian a year before his death. But my dad was raised in a Christian home. He knew about heaven. He knew about hell. He knew about the gospel. He knew that there are two destinations. There's a destination for those who receive Christ and the finished work on the cross. They repent. They turn from their own ways, and they start following Christ. And there's a destination of those who don't accept Christ. Ultimately, that's a rejection. There's heaven and there's hell. He knew all of that. Wasn't a believer, but he knew all of that. And I said to my dad, I said, Dad, is Evan saved? And my dad very quietly looks at me and he says, I don't think so. And so in that moment, I had to think, what was I going to do? And I came up with this plan that let's go back home because I have some gospel tracts there. And it, it was so logical. And that way, if we go in and he's not fully with it and he, you know, in and out or whatever, I can talk to him, but I'll leave this with him so when he is more able to look at it, he can read and see what we talked about. So we drove 15 minutes back to my parents' home. I got the gospel track. I highlighted and outlined some things. We drove 15 minutes back, and we got up to the hospital room, and Evan was now unresponsive. He was unresponsive. Uh, we don't know if he could hear anything. The very next day, Evan died. Now, did Evan die knowing Christ Jesus as a Savior? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that I had the opportunity twice to go and speak with Evan, as uncomfortable as that might have been, to go and speak with Evan and share the gospel with him. And I didn't do it. As believers, we can often be ruled by fear or shame. As believers, we can often say, I don't want to do that. I, 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 don't, I don't feel comfortable with that. <laughs> Christianity isn't about comfort. <laughs> Take a look at the life of Paul. We often do not want to share the truth because of this fear, fear of rejection, fear of losing a perceived image in the eyes of others, or maybe fear of gaining an unwanted image of a religious fanatic. 
If the fear of people is ruling what we say or do not say about Jesus, we need to listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. The passage speaks of the coming persecution that would befall Jesus' disciples. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 28, and fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, we are to fear God, not man. But still, I think we're often full of fear, fear of man. I think we're actually embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel, though maybe we've never thought about that. Folks, this last week, as I've been preparing for this sermon, God has really struck my heart about where I need to be, about what I need to do. It says in Galatians that if we were still trying to please men, we would not be pleasing God. The context here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 10, is those who twist the gospel. They distort the gospel in order to make it more palatable to people. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Let us this morning make a conscious decision to please God, to follow God, to share the amazing gospel, the amazing good news that we have with those around us, regardless of what people may think. Let's take a closer look at the second part of verse 16. The second part of Paul's statement is this, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so that was to the Jews and to the non-Jews. That's everyone. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel is the power of God. The Greek word here, as many of you have heard it, is dunamis. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons about the Greek word dunamis, and, uh, you know, that's where we get the word dynamite from because the gospel has explosive uh, results. Um, maybe. <laughs> Here's what Thayer's Greek lexicon says about this word dunamis, about this word power. It is, quote, inherent power, power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature or which a person or thing exerts and puts forth. It's inherent power. Now, that really shouldn't surprise us as Christians that the gospel has inherent power. Why? Because it comes from the one God who is inherently powerful. And when we take a look at God's words in Scripture, we notice something. Let me take it back to what I teach on a lot, and that's Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, if we actually read what it says, a lot of people say, well, it just says that God created. doesn't say how he created. No, no, read carefully. It tells us how he did it. Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then we see through 
out Genesis chapter one, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, he created by the very power of his word. Now, this isn't the only place that we see this in scripture. Psalm 33, starting in verse six. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, how? By his word. And all the hosts of them, by the breath of his mouth, he gathered the waters of the sea together as in heap, he layeth the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Also reiterated in Hebrews chapter 11, which tells us, by faith we understand that the world was formed by the word of God. God's words have inherent power because they come from the one who is inherently powerful. So the question arises, why are there so many churches out there that seem powerless in evangelism? The answer, I believe, is quite simple. How often do these churches really preach the gospel of Christ? You see, in Romans chapter 10, Paul tells us that the gospel is necessary for people to be saved. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We have to share the gospel because people are not going to just automatically get saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. I hear a lot of people say that I'm preaching the gospel through my life, how, how we interact with people. Yeah, that's definitely part of the Christian walk, but they have to have the message, the written message, the verbal message, if you share it, about the gospel of Christ. Now, preaching the gospel is going out of style, but according to God's word, it'll never be out of date. It is the power of God, and it is through the gospel that people are saved. Preaching the gospel is still the mission, or at least should be the mission, of every church. My wife and I, in 1999, moved down to Florida. I had already taken a theology degree, and I wanted to take a biology degree so that I'd be more equipped to deal with questions relating to Genesis chapters 1 to 11, theology and science. And uh, we started attending an independent Baptist church there. They had started up about six years before we got there with essentially no members. And they were actually in a storefront, and then they had just built this building when we got there. That was a, was a new building, new church building, fairly small, nice, but nothing extravagant. What struck me was the preacher. The preacher seemed to have only one thing on his mind, seeing people saved. He preached the gospel literally every single Sunday. He gave an opportunity for people to respond to that message literally every single Sunday. It was unlike any church I had ever attended before. 
The pastor was on absolute fire for Christ. Now, I believe that we can have more of an effect as believers in Christ by sharing with those around us the gospel message. And you might say, I don't know how to do that. Well, there's resources and things like that. The interesting thing about this pastor is he said every week he got mail, almost on a weekly basis from organizations. And uh, these organizations were giving ideas of how to make your church grow. And the pastor, Pastor Johnson, he said, I'd take those and I'd throw them straight into the trash can. Now, why would he do that? He said this, quote, we have known for 2,000 years how to get a church to grow, preach the truth and live the truth, end quote. Pastor Johnson is now 76 years old, and he still faithfully, every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday evening, preaching the Word of God, preaching the gospel. And I know Pastor Johnson could say without apology, without being ashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He knows firsthand, just like Paul did, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Isaiah 55, 11, now this is not particularly the context of the gospel, but it talks about God's words, God's word. It says this, Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. Folks, what will bring people to God? What will bring people to God? It's not the building we build. It's not the clothes we wear. It's not the charisma that we may have. It's God that brings people to God through His Word, the gospel, via the Holy Spirit. His Word is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do we really believe that God's Word is powerful, effective, and relevant? I think we sometimes forget that our battle is, as Ephesians puts it, quote, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6.12. Now, since the battle is a spiritual one, it can't be won with mere physical means. Now, don't get me wrong. Physical means are necessary, money's necessary, those sorts of things. But that alone can never win anyone to Christ. We've seen in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, first of all, that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because that gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's flip back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Now, I read verse 15, along with 16 and 17. Now, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Look at the verse before that in verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. If you want to be ready to preach the gospel, can you be ashamed of the gospel at the same time? 
No. And so there's a connection here between verse 15 and 16. Now, we haven't got to verse 17 yet, and I'm just going to make some passing marks, remarks about verse 17. It says, for therein, that is the gospel, there in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It is the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. Now, this word reveal in the Greek is Apocalypso, which means to uncover, to lay open that has, which has been veiled to, or, to, or covered up. And so the gospel uncovers, unveils, shows us the righteousness of God that can be credited to our account. Because our righteousness is not righteousness. Isn't that right? The Bible says even our righteous acts are as what? Filthy rags to God. And so we can't somehow be good enough so we have peace with God. The righteousness from God is revealed through Christ. It's exposed in the gospel, but it has to be received by faith. And so we see it says it's from faith to faith. Your translation may say something different. That's a literal translation, which basically means it starts with faith and it ends with faith. The beginning is faith, the end is faith, it's all faith. Faith, not in faith, but faith in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of groups that have faith in faith. No, it's faith that's placed in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty on the cross and his finished work that if we choose to repent, turn 180 degrees from that direction to this direction and follow Christ, that righteousness of God will be credited to our account. His payment for sin, which is death, is credited to our account, and his righteousness is credited to our account. So now God looks at us, and he said, you're righteous. All he sees is Christ's righteousness. Now we have peace with God. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Notice that near the beginning here how Paul starts this. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see throughout the New Testament, we have grace and peace, grace and peace. That's the correct order. First of all, you receive the grace from God, the unmerited favor when you choose to follow Christ, the grace, and that results in peace between you and God. Ephesians 2 says that it is not of works lest any man should boast. There are a couple things I'd like to share with you this morning that should encourage us, hopefully, to make the most of every opportunity to share the gospel without being ashamed. I'm going to call these factors, factors to sharing the gospel. First of all is the love factor, the love factor. The love of God for unbelievers should cause us to love them likewise and to share the truth of the gospel with them. Now, Jesus had an obvious love and compassion for every unbeliever. You see, Christ's love was not a philosophical love. It wasn't a love that you sit down and you discuss. It, it was a love that showed itself 
in action. It proved itself in action. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus did exactly that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want us to think for a moment what it cost Jesus to pay the penalty for sin. The amazing pain, the incredible struggle, the unthinkable agony. What must have it been like for Jesus, the God-man, 100% God and 100% man at the same time? Now, the reality is we can't identify with that because we're human and we're sinners. But Jesus was 100% God, 100% man at the same time, and he did not sin. Jesus was ridiculed, scoffed at, spit on, beat, flogged, had his beard ripped from his face and thorns forced onto his head. He faced humiliation, hatred, torture, and suffered unspeakable pain. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet, then faced death, all to pay for your sin and mine. I want us to think about that particular time in Jesus' life. The divinity of God was still part of his nature. He never ceased being God as he took the punishment for our sin. We read about the soldiers who put the scarlet robe on him and forced the thorn crown into the scalp of his head as blood surely ran down his face, as the soldiers flogged him nearly to death as they nailed him to that cross and inflicted unspeakable pain upon his body, Jesus was still God in the flesh. Jesus could have destroyed those soldiers with one word. With one word, just as easily as he had calmed the storm or walked on the water or fed the 4,000 or 5,000 or made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the dead to rise, with one word he could have destroyed them. But he chose to endure the pain and suffer the humiliation for you and for me. Jesus, being fully God, knew what was about to happen through every step of the way. He knew that as Isaiah 53, 1 to 12, he knew Isaiah 53, 1 to 12 was speaking of him. Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to read 1 through 11. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes are we healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own path, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, that he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to her slaughter, is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off 
of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge that my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Shall justify many, just as if we had not sinned. Are you justified this morning through the death of Christ? Now, Jesus knew the text of Scripture well. He would have been familiar with that passage. But He was also God in the flesh. Let's take a look at Luke 22, verse 41 to 45. And He was withdrawn from them, that is, His disciples, about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him." Hmm. Interesting. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus knew what was coming. It was his love for us that took him to the cross. As one author writes, the ropes used to tie his hands and the soldiers used to lead him to the cross were unnecessary. It was not the soldiers who killed him nor the screams of the mob. It was his devotion to us. Since Jesus loved us so much, we ought to love those around us. And how do we do that? We can share the truth of God's Word. We can share the gospel with them. As Christians, we understand the fact that we are saved by grace by unmerited favor. So this brings us to the second factor, and that is the command factor. The command factor. We are commanded to tell others about Jesus. Now, we understand that it's by grace through faith, it's unmerited favor that we're saved. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do good works. It's not the good works that save us. Good works are evidence that we've been saved, that God is transforming us. James 2 verse 18 says this, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. A person can no more remain unchanged by God's forgiving grace as a person can remain unchanged by contact with 250,000 volts. A life that has experienced grace will be a life that works for God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, most of us or many of us may have this memorized, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But notice verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, saved by grace to do good works. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20 says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. 
I've noticed throughout the years a lot of different groups that we would consider cults, which means the message of Christ is distorted, it's twisted. And Jehovah's Witnesses are one of those groups. It amazes me the work that they do, which is part of their salvation, and they're never 100% sure whether they're saved, to use our terminology. Isn't it interesting how much people are willing to do to save their own soul, willing to do for an outright lie? Now, the JWs have been selling, I mean, most of them they actually give them away, uh, a book since 1968. It's called The Truth That Leads to Eternal Life. And if I may be rather blunt this morning, it really should be entitled The Lies That Lead to Eternal Death. Nevertheless, they were in the Guinness Book of World Records for selling over 107, 000, sorry, 107 million of these books. They've passed them out. Now, that was up to 1996, and so I'm imagining that that number has gone even higher. But it actually bothers me deeply um, that a cult like the Jehovah's Witnesses are out there all the time. And I met them when I was in Bible college, and I had elders sitting at my table, and we would discuss the Scriptures. How much more could God accomplish through the truth and through those He's already saved through Jesus Christ to reach a lost and hurting world? But it's a hassle. People may think we're lunatics. We may lose respect from people. We may be embarrassed or ashamed. Can we really say without reservation this morning, I am not ashamed of the gospel? This is Paul's challenge to us today to make the most of every opportunity to tell the world about Jesus. It's a reality check. Let's actively and consciously do everything we can to see people saved through the message of the cross. It is a message of God's grace shown to those who do not deserve it. It is a message of God's love to a fallen world. Now, we all have people we interact with regularly, and I'm not pulling this out of Scripture, it's just a fact. We have family, we have friends, we have colleagues, we have coworkers that we have a, some level of relationship with which makes it easier to speak with them. Would you consider this week picking even just one of those and praying for that person and asking God for opportunities to share even little by little with that person? 1 John 5, 11 to 13. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And I'll end with this. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your message, your gospel message, the good news.
And Lord, we know that we're saved by grace, unmerited favor. There's nothing that we could do, and we thank you and praise you uh, for salvation through Christ. And Lord, I just pray if there are any here that don't know you, Lord, I, might, I pray that they might uh, ask um, faithful Christian friends or ask the elders here or even come and talk to me later. We just want to show you from the Bible how you can be saved, how you can be forgiven, how you can be rescued from your sin. And Lord, we pray that you go with us today and the rest of this week, that you continue to speak to our hearts and our minds, that you'll make opportunities available to us, and Lord, that you would give us the strength that we would be able to share Christ without shame. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.